This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. We're not only defined by uh, by the job that we do nine to five, we need to make time in our lives for those relationships that we have with others, those meaningful hobbies and goals outside of our practice. And it can be difficult in a, in a, a particular field where you are passionate about what you do. Um, that I, I, I feel the same way about the work that I do now. I spend long hours sometimes working through a particular question, doing some research until late into the night. Um, but we need to pay attention to when we're burning the candle at both ends, and we need to make time for those things that feel more like they are replenishing activities and not just uh, grinding long hours because that's expected. Um, it's As you can see in the numbers, it is a one-way ticket to overwhelm burnout, and a lot of physicians are choosing just to leave the field now. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Fred Rosenberg. These past years have been difficult for all of us on so many levels. We all know that physician burnout is a serious challenge for the healthcare system, and I'm sure we've all experienced the effects of burnout in our GI practices. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rachel Kenarowski, who is the founder of Year of Living Better. Her organization is, is on a mission to transform workplaces to decrease stress. I'm excited to hear from Rachel about how she has developed and implemented evidence-based solutions that support employee wellness and reduce risks associated with physician burnout. Rachel, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. We always like to start by getting to know our guests. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path and what led you to become a mindfulness facilitator and focus on workplace well-being? Absolutely. You know, I've had a career that spanned a lot of different roles, including a lot of roles in high-stress situations. I actually uh, launched InStyle magazine in the Czech Republic and was their editor-in-chief for the first three and a half years of that project. As you can imagine, launching a magazine is uh, a complicated endeavor, um, but launching a magazine after the crash of 2007-2008 was particularly difficult. And my staff and I were uh, under extreme stress in many situations. It wasn't life and death, but it was um, whether or not the magazine would be able to continue to thrive and people would have jobs. Later, I moved back to the U.S. I'm an American, and based here in Chicago, I've worked on a lot of consumer marketing projects, including leading strategy on a $26 million program that Target Corporation uh, hosted for their uh, shoppers in store. Um, so when you have those kinds of dollars on the line, you're always looking at um, what needs to be done, how to think in advance. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the team. And so I saw that there was such a need within the corporate environment to start to use some better tools myself and with my team to really make sure that we were at our best and doing well personally. Um, you know, that's the, the first piece of that. 
In 2020, as many people were, I was my job was impacted by uh, the pandemic, and I had been quietly starting to put some of these learning tools and practices into place for other organizations to start to use. And I decided I might as well build an entire company around it. Um, so that's what's gotten me to today. Uh, now I support organizations of almost every type. Uh, I recently led my workshop on stress and self-care for the team at Google. I work as well with physician leaders like yourself. Um, I've worked in the public health space, but you know, I, I really don't run across anyone out in the world who says, ah, I'm okay, I don't need some, I don't need some new tools and some new tricks. So um, I'm, I feel really lucky to be able to, to focus on the science and to share these things back in a way that's not just interesting, but also useful for the people who are, who are attending my, my workshops. Um, one of the ways the pandemic has, has changed our medical practices has been that um, we're much more uh, separated from each other. Um, there's lots of Zoom contacts with patients, lots of staff works offsite, and that definitely impacts our ability to develop relationships with our employees and has a negative impact on physician satisfaction. Physician burnout is a serious issue. Um, can we talk about what you see as some of the causes of burnout and why it's important for GI practice leaders to focus on it. Yeah, I am happy to talk about that. I do see that physician leaders have a particular uh, set of circumstances that makes burnout more likely. And, uh, you know, all of this uncertainty that we've been dealing with throughout the pandemic, which we continue to deal with as the economy is uncertain, um, all of that stress starts us at a baseline of where we would begin towards burnout. So adding all of those additional factors has made it particularly difficult for all of us to get back to feeling okay more of the time. Um, I'm not sure if those of your uh, those in your audience will be familiar with the Yerkes-Dodson law. It's a bell-curved graph where stress and performance are shown on a uh, uh, on that curve. So we do need some stress in order to really be high performing, to be engaged, um, to be excited about life. We, we call that eustress, of course. And you, know, you move up the continuum with a little bit more stress, a little bit more stress, and then you hit the top of that bell curve. And then when we have too much stress, we really struggle with complex tasks in our lives. And you start to go down that bell curve on the other side towards burnout. So if you can imagine all of the day-to-day -day stress that we're dealing with kind of moves over that left side of your starting point and you start closer to the top of that bell curve, you would start closer to where you start moving towards burnout. And that's why I really advocate for us to be paying more attention to how we are feeling um, day to day so that we can start to resource ourselves more often in times of stress to get more access to that left side of the curve. You know, one of the challenges that uh, probably exists in all businesses and industries, but we certainly see it in medical practice, is that um, there's a dichotomy in, in how physicians view the work-life balance 
that is generational. And, and the physician leaders, which who mostly come from a, a older cohort of, of people, um, have a different view of um, what comes, what's important in life, and and where the patient uh, day ends and the and the family life begins. And uh, the younger physicians are much more rigid about protecting their life, the life part of that equation. Um, and as a leader, it becomes difficult to balance that. And do you see that kind of problem existing in in other industries? And and how do you how do you um, help people to resolve that? Yeah, you know, I see particular challenges for for you as physician leaders. Uh, my mother's a nurse practitioner, so I'm, I'm familiar with uh, the small practice environment and a lot of the changes that have happened over the span of her career. Um, she's recently uh, retired, but in the span of that time, um, you know, electronic medical records became a large part of her day. Um, her practice was no longer using um, medical transcriptionists, and so she was responsible for really making sure that every little word that she spoke in was transcribed correctly by the tool. That takes hours and hours of additional time. And it's difficult to adapt to new systems. So even though, you know, we see that these systems um, can and are helpful in many um, environments, each time the technology changes, there's an update that makes those systems better. It's something to relearn. And I don't think that probably you went into uh, the medical field planning on also balancing a lot of tech that's not needed for uh, the day-to-day use of your job. I mean, we're not talking about the uh, special equipment needed to run a colonoscopy, but, you know, we're talking about these sort of inane computer programs that that you have to deal with day-to-day. I have a lot of compassion for the environment that you're working within. I think that... Um, we can all agree with this additional workload that I've been describing, this additional stress load that I've been describing. We do need to to take a step back and and start to reevaluate within your workplace environment um, where could things be changed so that you can spend more time with the patients that you care about. And that's there aren't easy answers to that. But I also do think that we need to be really protective about the time that you're spending outside of your practice. I think we can take a page out of the out of the book from those younger physicians and and start to recognize that we're not only defined by uh, by the job that we do nine to five, we need to make time in our lives for those relationships that we have with others, those meaningful hobbies and goals outside of our practice. And it can be difficult in a, in a, a particular field where you are passionate about what you do. Um, that I, I, I feel the same way about the work that I do now. I spend long hours sometimes working through a particular question, doing some research to late into the night. Um, but we need to pay attention to when we're burning the candle at both ends and we need to make time for those things that feel more like they are replenishing activities and not just uh, grinding long hours because that's expected. Um, it's As you can see in the numbers, it is a one-way ticket to overwhelm burnout and a lot of physicians are choosing just to leave the field now. 
Right, which only makes the uh, healthcare environment for patients and practitioners more challenging. Exactly. Yeah. You've worked with the Chicago Department of Public Health to develop a well-being program for their staff. Those of us who are physicians or or who work in healthcare uh, and public health tend to have a focus on data and research. How does your approach differ in healthcare settings compared to other employment settings? Yeah, well, actually, I bring in the research in all the the workplaces that I go into. So I I think when I, uh, so I work with a lot with teaching those in my workshops and um, engaging with with my trainings um, about the basics of their nervous system. And when I'm working with physicians, I will use the more technical language, but um, we take time to step back and, and really look at not just in general, we all know, obviously, the autonomic nervous system. You have a, a you know sympathetic and parasympathetic response that regulates how your, your body is functioning, how your gut, your heart, your lungs are functioning. But we actually have three states to that system and when we're thinking more from a, from a psychology perspective and how these, these practices are used in a therapeutic setting with um, therapists and, and uh, psychologists. We have three states of our nervous system. We have a, you know, a rest and digest, which polyvagal theory would look at and call safety and connection. It's where we can connect and feel replenished and feel like we have a chance for personal growth, also becoming more physically healthy, allowing our body the time it needs to repair itself. We have our fight-flight response, that sympathetic nervous system response that says there's danger, I need to get away, or I need to aggress. Then we also have that third state, which is a newer state getting added on. Sometimes we hear about it as the freeze state. Um, This is the dorsal vagal activation of the network that's that's the vagus nerve that's subdiaphragmatic. So when I'm working with physicians, I'm bringing in more of that language, but that that subdiaphragmatic part of the vagus nerve, it's where we go when we feel life threat. And so when you've had that, that icky feeling in your stomach, when you've had that feeling in your gut that something is wrong, that's the freeze response coming on. And um, that's where depression and grief can live. Um, the positive side of it, it's also where digestion and, of course, connection can happen, being quiet, going to sleep. We go more into that mode of our nervous system. But when it is sensing danger, we're actually going to go into almost a shutdown down response. And so it's really, really, really important as we are thinking about our own states throughout the day to notice, am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling annoyed? Am I angry? That's your sympathetic nervous system sending you some some, uh, signals that maybe something needs to be attended to. Maybe something does need to be changed. When you start feeling really that ick in your gut, that's when you really want to pause and you want to say, okay, how do I need to resource myself in this particular moment? Um, but yeah, I find that bringing in scientific research um, it, to, to all of my trainings actually makes what I do very different. And it doesn't matter if I'm, I'm working with a tech engineer or if I'm working with a physician, they want to know that these aren't just like good ideas I came up with in my, you know, in, in my closet. They want to believe that these things are really based in science. And the science isn't there completely to describe all of the 
effects that a practice like meditation might have. But I think when you when you start to look at it, what we're seeing in a meditation, when the meditation experience that we're having is something that brings us relaxation, you're seeing that it's bringing up that parasympathetic, parasympathetic response. It's eliciting that relaxation response that Dr. Herbert Benson first described. Um, and he was a cardiologist and he saw, hey, when when this parasympathetic response comes up and people go into this relaxation response, they feel better. And he connected that to meditation, but we can certainly get that same parasympathetic response from something as simple as, you know, spending time with our dog, you know, um, you know, snuggling with a loved one, um, taking a look at a, a really beautiful sunset for, you know, a few moments and allowing your body a chance to catch up with how much you're enjoying what you're seeing in that sunset. All of these things can elicit the relaxation response as well. Well, those all sound like great ideas. How can the physician recognize the symptoms of burnout and um, what kind of self-care tools can they use to fight against that? Yeah, so I've mentioned already that we have kind of these two states within our nervous system that are sending us signals something isn't okay. And I, I also want to say that, you know, the thing that might not be okay might not be something that you can change right away. It might be, oh, no, they've run an update and now, you know, the, the records are not connecting the way that they are supposed to anymore, right? Um, it could be this coworker is really irritating me and you still have to work together. So the first thing we want to do is just notice for each of us, how does it start to feel when we're going into one of these two responses. Um, I find in particular, we have not allowed men traditionally in American culture access to a lot of their emotions. We've told you very early in your life, you know, don't be a crybaby. Um, and so in particular, I, you know, I love working with men on this topic because they start to recognize again, oh, okay, I have access to more aside from just irritation and anger which is the emotion we do allow men to have access to. Um, you know, I do feel that thing in my gut sometimes, right? And it's not just about pushing through those times, but when I notice I'm starting to feel anxious or when I notice I am feeling sad or a little bit foggy, a little bit zoned out, pausing and noticing what works for me when I'm in this state. And you need to start to create a list. You know, you can keep it in your phone. You can keep it um, in your wallet if people still have a wallet. You know, you can keep it, uh, you know, keep it close by. I, I carry a little moleskin journal um, and I have written in there these two states. And I make a plan when I'm feeling like this. These are the things that are starting to work for me. Because normally what happens is you get to a level of burnout and then you go to Google and you ask Dr. Google, like, what can I do to, you know, deal with anxiety, deal with depression, right? Um, and you're getting a lot of the these, you know, answers like sleep more, drink more water, get more exercise. None of those are bad ideas, but you can adapt those dictates 
to match what you actually enjoy, what works within your life. Maybe you don't like the taste of water. You know, you can drink another liquid beverage. I mean, the research is actually pretty fascinating on this, that uh, we've always been told that um, other beverages are not as hydrating or, um, you know, you, you can actually get, they're saying, a, a lot of your water through what you're eating throughout the day. So you don't have to, you know, if you've drank enough water, you certainly don't have to drink more and assume that your anxiety is going to go away. Um, if you're experiencing anxiety, sleep's probably pretty difficult for you to access. So what can you do to give yourself more rest and more downtime? Um, I'm not saying that, you know, any of those ideas are are bad, but some ideas we do run across in lists from very well-meaning people, like meditation, right? Maybe you've done meditation. You're like, this sucks. I don't feel like I, anything changed. I feel like a failure at this. Don't do meditation in that state or find a different type of meditation or relaxation or mindfulness pro uh, uh, process that works for you, that feels good. Because any activity that we're doing to resource ourselves to get a little bit of a cognitive and physical break should leave us feeling better after we did it than before. You know, when we even when we finish a, a hard workout, you've got the sweat to prove that you did this for yourself. And maybe that brings you happiness and and a feeling of well-being because you feel like you've taken a step that's going to support your life and your health. Right. But if you exercise and you pull your muscle and, you know, you, you threw out your back, you're not going to want to go back and do that exercise again. So it's really, really important that we first start to recognize when our nervous system is dysregulated. We second, first note what in our environment might be causing it. If there's something and you can make a change, absolutely do. You know, um, as a meditation facilitator, I always tell people, you know, if you've got an itch or your back hurts, sit in a chair or, uh, you know, it, scratch that itch. We don't need to be like taking that time to feel like, oh no, I'm, I'm having discomfort. If something in your environment is something you can attend to right away, absolutely do it. Make that change. And then the third thing is if you can't make that change, what are the small steps that you can take throughout your day, maybe on the weekend, um, you know, in the afternoon, lunchtime before you get, what are the things that work for you to help you when you're in that state? Start to create a practical list that you can keep nearby and remember to look at it, adapt it over time. I've had things on my list I thought are things that resource me and I realize over time, no, they actually really, really don't. Um, it's also important to make sure that this list has things that you can both do on your own and things you can do with others. Because we do know as well from the research that Dr. Stephen Porges has done to divine polyvagal theory, um, together with the research that his wife, Sue Carter, who used to be the director of the Kinsey Institute, has done around oxytocin and uh, bonding between organisms. She did a lot of work with prairie voles to, to look at this. We know that we need this co-regulation with safe others. And that safe other can also be a dog or a cuddly cat. You know, it can be um, feeling connected even to a spiritual presence if that's part of your life. But we do need a sense, hopefully, of another 
tangible nervous system in the room who might be regulated so that you can uh, can you kind of draft on that other nervous system to co-regulate and feel better. So think about like your day-to-day and your practice and also with your patients, right? You're in communication with another nervous system there too. And so when you are regulated, you'll be bringing that regulation into those interactions. Rachel, those are great suggestions. What can GI practice leaders do to support the well-being of their physicians and their staff to, to reduce burnout? Yeah, exactly. So um, so I just uh, it touched on a big one, which is take care of your own nervous system, your own well-being, because you as, as a human in your practice, interacting with your staff and with your patients, you are ta- you're talking nervous system to nervous system. There's so much that when you come into um, a room with a patient, they're picking up from you, right? Um, and so it's hard to manufacture a calm presence when your day is just got you cashed, right? You are at the end of your rope and you don't have a lot more to give, you know, your patients are going to pick up on that from you. So before you walk into an interaction with a patient, with a staff member who you know you might need to have a difficult conversation with, you definitely want to take a micro pause and start to build in actions that can give you a sense of really changing into back into this interaction mode again, because you might have been really in your head, filing charts, doing all, you know, updating charts, doing all the things that need to happen. But giving yourself a moment to pause before having those interactions will really help your nervous systems relate better to one another. It's also really important to know that when we are in the sympathetic state of nervous system arousal, We misread interpersonal cues. And so understanding that if you are walking into that interaction, that difficult conversation that you need to have with a staff member, right? They're probably nervous, which means they may not hear you accurately. They definitely will not interpret every uh, physical reaction, every expression on your face, the, the tone of your voice. They're not going to interpret that with the most generous interpretation because our body is trying to keep us safe. And it's saying, I'm sensing danger, therefore I'm going to weight all of my perceptions towards danger rather than towards safety. And so knowing that when you're interacting with someone and you're noticing that they may feel anxious, they may feel angry, um, you want to know that they're not able to, and if you're feeling like that as well, you're not able to read the room accurately. So we really need to do everything that we can to resource ourselves both throughout the day and then in our time off so that it's easier to come back into autonomic balance and get that part of our brain back that can have creative thought, creative problem solving, and effective interpersonal communication back. I think that's really helpful. What advice would you give to the young physician who's entering what hopefully would be a really rewarding life career, but will also be a highly stressful? Yeah. You know, I'd let that person know that when we walk into a new situation, when we when we have any kind of disruption to the the habits that we built for ourselves, you know, when, when you when you went off to 
college and then to medical school, each of those was a was a disrupting moment in your life and you had to relearn a lot of things, right? So when you're coming into the field for the first time as a practicing physician or you're uh, changing the practice that you work within, you can expect that at the beginning, things are going to feel more like an overload for your system more of the time. But once you do establish norms of communication with these new people, once you you do establish new habits around how you structure your day so you are able to, to fit in all of the components that you're required to, it will feel better. So, you know, just knowing for all of us, and that goes for, you know, physicians at any point in their practice, um, knowing that each time we have a disruption to our norms, even if it's somebody new joining your practice and it's a new person for you to interact with, it's going to be more load on on your nervous system to start to understand how to create norms in that situation. It's going to feel harder for a little while. So I, you know, I think just understanding that that's part of the process and again, recognizing when you might need to attend to your own health and well-being, and making sure that you are getting that on your calendar, that you're starting to create that resourcing list for yourself and you're using it. So do what you need to do and uh, don't be afraid as well to speak up to others, either within the field or within your own work environment and let them know when you are feeling overloaded because I know we, I'm in my early 40s and I, I, I know that I I definitely was raised in a culture where you have to just suck it up and keep moving on. Um, I was raised in a family system where I was told all the time, you're fine, you're fine, everything's fine. Um, And I think that those of us who are younger and Gen Z is not quite coming online in the physician world, but they will. I'm so excited by Gen Z because they actually can recognize we're not fine and that's okay. And I think the last two years have made expressing the we're not fine and we're going to move through this together. It's made that more acceptable, even in professional environments. So speak up. Like I said, if you don't feel like you can speak up within your work environment, um, you know, reach out to others because I'll tell you what, um, I've worked with a lot of groups and I often ask people at the beginning of our session, you know, what are some new stressors you've come across in the last few years? And there are some very, common answers across that list. And I'm always so proud of everyone who who raises their hand or shares in those sessions because as we share what we've been struggling with, we normalize our struggles uh, that others might be experiencing as well. And um, we need more of those conversations. You've opened a conversation on a, a really important uh, subject, but I suspect we've only scratched the surface. Where can people find out more about Year of Living Better? Yeah, so the easiest way is to go to my website, which is Year of Living Better. Obviously, no hyphens, no spaces. Uh, yearoflivingbetter.com. Um, there you can find what I am uh, working on with some collaborators. We're creating an open source resource library of all of the original research that these well-being practices are based on. Um, They're not my practices. They're practices that um, have been studied. So, you know, where can we learn more about the eight 
habits that science says make us happier over time? You know, where can we find um, new resources to help us through stressful times? So that's at yearoflivingbetter.com. And I also encourage people, find me on LinkedIn. You can search Year of Living Better. Um, I'm Rachel Kanarowski on LinkedIn. I won't make you try to spell that one. Um, But you'll find me on LinkedIn. Connect. Um, You can send me a question there. I'm always happy to have conversations with anyone who's either um, questioning things for their own practice or, you know, looking at how they can be a more effective leader and bring these practices into their organization. Rachel, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us on Gastro Broadcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.